Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. The scripture reading today comes from the first book of Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The resurrection of Christ. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He then appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, and to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, so you have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. This is a reading from the Gospel of Luke. One day, Jesus was standing beside Lake Genesaret when the crowd pressed in around him to hear God's word. Jesus saw two boats sitting out by the lake. The fishermen had gone ashore and were washing their nets. So Jesus boarded one of the boats, the one that belonged to Simon, then asked him to row out a little distance from the shore. Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, row out further into the deep water and drop your nets for a catch. Simon replied, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but because you say so, I'll drop the nets. So they dropped their nets, and their catch was so huge that the nets were splitting. They signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. They filled both boats so full that they were about to sink. When Simon Peter saw the catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Peter and those with him were overcome with amazement because of the number of fish they caught. And James and John, Zebedee's sons, were Simon's partners, and they were amazed too. Jesus said then to Simon, Don't be afraid. 
From now on, you will be fishing for people. As soon as they brought the boats to shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So there's an old joke about a farmer, so old, in fact, it may be unknown to this demographic. And so it's recyclable, and not many of us are farmers, so... A young farmer standing in a Midwestern field observes a peculiar cloud formation overhead. The clouds form the letters G, P, and C. And he considers them to be a call from God. Go preach Christ. The farmer rushes to the elders of his church to tell them that he believes he's been called by God to preach. Deferential, they invite him. That Sunday, the sermon is long tedious, mind-numbing, and virtually incoherent. And when it finally ends, the church leaders sit dumbfounded. Finally, a savvy elder mumbles to the young preacher, seems to me the clouds were saying, go plant corn. (laughs) If it really happened that way, it wouldn't be the first time that there's been confusion about what it means to be called into the ministry. The concept of a call is one of the most compelling of all the biblical and theological ideas. Our Bible is riddled with stories about calls to women and men who, when summoned to service by God, went out and marked their communities in particular ways. Over the next week, we'll be exploring a series of calls, their commonalities and the unique insights of a host of stories in our Epiphany series, Awake. Stories of God's calling. We'll sample some of the greatest stories from both Testaments. So what on this ordination and installation Sunday might God be telling us about God's call, about following Christ in the world today? Vocation just means calling. We all have a vocation. The two words are synonyms, concepts rooted in our Christian history and experience. We wonder if there's something to the idea that God has called us to do something with our lives. We wonder if what we do will have meaning and purpose when we're fulfilling, answering that call. Our identity as individuals and also as a whole community springs from this intersection of opportunity and purpose. The writer Nora Gallagher says this about what it's like when God's call comes to us. She says, candidates for the ministry often talk about being called. I used to cringe at that word. I found it overblown for what it was, a career choice, I thought. Are bankers called? I'm still wary of it, nor do I like its cheap and casual use within the religious community. Oh, she's called to the fundraising community. He's called to be an acolyte. But then something certainly happened to me. A firm, insistent pressure directly between my shoulder blades was a felt presence, unnerving and unmistakable. Simone Well called it an impulse of an essentially and manifestly different order. And then she added not to follow such an impulse when it made itself felt even if it demanded impossibilities, seemed to me the greatest of all ills. 
First, the call to follow Jesus can be abrupt and disruptive. Sometimes when Jesus calls, we cannot take the time to fashion a textbook plan. We must improvise. When Jesus called to Simon, Peter, and James, and John by the Sea of Galilee, he said, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. He did not say, here are your strategic objectives. Talk this through with your team and see if this mission is scalable. Thank goodness for present-day ministry often allows at least one or two session or deacon's meetings worth of scrutiny for an idea, but not always. Sometimes Jim and Sue sitting over there will have to decide at a moment's notice when they're in the fresh food section at Meyer how to answer a question about advocacy for refugees and immigrants, that what does the church have to say about gun violence? in the world in which we live today. Or sometimes Diane's phone will ring at 5 a.m. in the morning and out of a fog of sleep she'll be awakened to her call as a deacon, call to meet a deacon at the hospital who's awaiting surgery. Improvisation is often needed. Jesus' call to Simon Peter that we read from Luke is frankly a Presbyterian polity nightmare. It is not done decently or in order. There's no time for prayer or discernment. There's no 8 a.m. Sunday morning classes. There's no requirement of a faith story. They can't check out the book of order or last month's session minutes. Follow me, Jesus says to Simon Peter and the brothers James and John. And so they left their boats on the shore and they followed him. I know a pastor in Virginia who some years ago got a call out of the blue from a group of 20 migrant farm workers who were traveling through town. They were on their way to pick fruit, apples, and peaches in the mountains when their bus broke down on the interstate. So being a Presbyterian elder herself, the leader called the local Presbyterian church downtown, hoping to spend the night there. We need a place to sleep, she explained to the pastor who happened to pick up the phone. You mean tonight, the pastor gulped? See, can you help us? There are a few seconds silence. Of course you can, the pastor said. We'll have dinner ready at six and we'll gather together as many air mattresses and sleeping bags as we can find. We'd love to welcome you in a spirit of Christian hospitality at our church. I'll make some calls. I'll see you at 6.30. I hope you're hungry. Following Jesus even today can be shockingly abrupt. It can play havoc with your priorities. You have to improvise. Working the night shift with Jesus out on the Sea of Galilee, Simon, Peter, and James, and John and their their crew of fishermen experienced something abrupt and disruptive in the call of Jesus on their lives. They worked overnight. Overnight in their small boats and caught little or nothing. Time and again in the dark, in the cold, the deep waters, their nets had come up empty. Frustrated and exhausted, back on shore, they're still working, working, mending their nets and cleaning them when Jesus comes to offer some unsolicited fishing advice. A young adult in our first Pres community, someone I admire a great deal, 
Works the night shift here in town at one of the local hospitals in the emergency department. The work, she says, is intense and intimate. It's relentless. She says night shift is a hard thing mentally, physically, and emotionally. And it is everything in between. Part of it comes with being on your feet, working for 12 straight hours. She also says that in the quiet moments that open in what she calls the little hours of the night, create openings for rich conversations with patients and swapping stories with other team members. Their stories make me wonder what it was that Simon and those brothers were talking about when they were out in the little hours of the night reflecting and thinking about what God might be doing. Luke does not tell us what Jesus taught the crowds that morning. The focus is all on what follows. Jesus tells Simon to put out in the deep water and to let down his nets. Simon obviously thinks this is a futile exercise. He's the professional fisherman after all, and Jesus is the all-knowing expert. We can almost hear the exasperation in his voice when he responds, But Master... We have worked all night. We have caught nothing. But then he continues, yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. We know what happens next. Nets so full they begin to split. Boats so full of fish they begin to sink. Seeing what's happening, Jesus is overwhelmed. Simon, excuse me, is overwhelmed with fear and wonder. And he senses that he's in the presence of something holy and divine. He responds by falling down at Jesus' knees and begging him, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Upon hearing Jesus preaching and participating in the astonishing catch, Simon does not say, What wisdom, power, and authority you have. I volunteer to be a deacon. Let me go and follow you right now. Launch me to do your work. Completely the opposite. Upon hearing Jesus' wisdom and especially upon seeing his power, his authority, Simon tries to send Jesus away. Such a response seems odd today, but in the ancient world it was an expected answer to a divine presence. In the tradition of the Hebrew Bible, labeling faith is fear of the Lord. Simon and his partners were astounded. They were frightened. Simon, the one who came to be called Rock, the foundation of the church, this one drops to his knees and shudders and says, go away from me, Lord, for I am sinful. It's a moment of real humility. We generally conceive of confession of sin as a transaction that is offered to God to receive grace. This story offers a counter view that is most helpful, but it's particularly enlightening to those who have been called into leadership roles. Upon receiving astonishing grace from Jesus in the form of an abundant catch of fish that he could not accomplish on his own, Simon confesses his sinfulness and need for holiness. Instead of trying to persuade God to address the fact that we are are woefully and painfully mired in our human condition, 
when we're able to realize that God has first addressed our condition, we're able to confess that we are stuck. It's at this moment following Jesus' teaching and the miraculous catch of fish in which Simon names his unfitness to be in Jesus' presence that Jesus propels him in a new direction. He calls him to focus on people instead of fish. This story is a powerful theological reflection on the nature of Christian vocation for us all. In today's world, we often think, speak about the contributions we can make to the ministry of the church in terms of our own distinctive gifts and skills and talents. And so we connect people with skills in music or finance or in teaching with those ministries because they have exhibited those gifts in those areas. There's wisdom in this practice, and we do that here. But Luke looks at calling from a different angle. As Peter himself admits in this scene, he and his partners are disasters at their job. They fished all night and caught nothing. The very reason Jesus can see Simon's boat is because there's no fish in it. It's empty. Luke, Jesus does not call these men because they've displayed gifts and graces for discipleship, even for fishing. Jesus calls them after he has shown them that he can catch fish through them when they cannot do so on their own. Simon is not called to catch people because he will be good at it, but because God and Jesus Christ can do it through him. And so it is with us. The moment we humbly recognize that we have nothing commendable to bring into Christ's presence in the ministry of the church, maybe that very moment when the whole world turns and Christ begins to use us in ways that we could have never imagined. Barbara Brown Taylor says that this is a story about God. It's really not about the disciples, nor is it about us. To focus on what the disciples gave up and Whether or not we could do the same is to put the accent on the wrong syllable. This miracle story is about the power of God to walk right up to a crew of fishermen and work a miracle, creating faith where there was no faith, creating disciples where there were none just a moment before. We've become so fiercely independent, so much seemingly in control of our own lives and our time that we may have lost something, she says. We've lost a sense of the fullness of the power of God, the power of God to recruit people who have made terrible choices, the power of God to invade the most hapless lives and fill them with light, the power of God to sneak up upon people who are thinking about lunch and not about God and then smack them upside the head with glory. There's no magic formula to following Jesus the Christ as a pastor or a student or as an elder or a deacon, a member, a child. There's no perfect path to an ability to empower others to follow as well. You can't order it in time for vacation Bible school in June and expect it to be complete by the fall. These elders and these deacons, these pastors and musicians, our church administrators and facilities people, even with the abundant and considerable gifts that they have, will all slip on the ice from time to time. 
Ultimately, we learn to follow by encountering God's holy word and scripture in personal reading and study groups and classrooms and in our lives together. We become followers when we gather in this marvelous sanctuary and as the reformers put it, the word is truly preached and the spirit brings us into God's presence around the Lord's supper. We learn to follow God by raising our voices in hymns and psalms and our songs to God. We learn to follow by praying alone at home or during our walk or our daily run. We learn to pray on pilgrimage in Spain or Italy. We pray in the hospital, in the chapel. We pray before we start work on a habitat project or meditating in Monteith Hall. We figure out how to follow Jesus the Christ by praying with our hands and feet within these walls and out beyond, mostly beyond, in Dumaguete in the Philippines, in Detroit when we deliver a load of food that's been reclaimed and recycled out of the big house, flipping a house for habitat in Ypsilanti, or staying downstairs overnight with our guests from the rotating shelter. We learn to follow God by discerning how God's Spirit moves in always mysterious and surprising ways. Our early church leaders made much of the fact that a church sanctuary might look something like a ship turned upside down. The Latin word for boat is, of course, navis, nave, like the nave of a sanctuary. Collectively, as a people, we are a boat. The Jesus boat cast out upon the waters of this world, fishing for people, saving them, giving them life and mercy and a fresh and new start, and bringing them finally safely to shore. A cliche, yes, of course, but it is a magnificent and holy one at that. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen.